If I don't know you yet, my name is Aaron, and I've got the privilege of sharing a message with you today while Pastor Brian is on vacation visiting his family. And today, we are going to get into what might be the single most problematic chapter of Scripture in the entire Bible. We're looking at 1 Peter today, and if you want to open up a Bible app or something and follow along, more specifically, we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2. And 1 Peter chapter 2 is a very problematic chapter. And I'll tell you why in just a second. But first, I want to be clear about something. This chapter is not problematic because it's wrong or because it's not God-inspired or because it's bad. It's nothing like that. This chapter is not problematic because of what it says. It's problematic because of how it's been used. You might have heard me say this before, but the best attitude that I believe you can take towards your Bible is to understand that Scripture is infallible, but your interpretation of Scripture is not infallible. Scripture is infallible, but your interpretation of Scripture is not infallible, and someone else's interpretation of Scripture is not infallible either. I believe that the Bible is right and correct, but I don't believe that everything every pastor has ever said about the Bible is right and correct. And 1 Peter is the best example that I know of that historically. The book of 1 Peter has been publicly and intentionally misinterpreted to defend slavery, to prop up and support illegitimate governments in countries around the world, and to silence and oppress the voices of women. So, how do you preach a sermon on a text that is so historically loaded and that has so often been used and weaponized to hurt and oppress others. Well, if I was a senior pastor, I'd probably schedule that sermon to fall on a holiday weekend, and then I would leave town and make someone else do the message. <laughs> Will you pray with me? God, I'm asking today that you would open up our hearts and our minds to the truth, to the pure spiritual milk that is your holy word. Help us to look past the ugly history and wrong-headed opinions that have clouded so many, and help us to focus on what you have to say, not on what others have said. And now, as we lean into a posture of listening and hearing, we ask that you would rid our hearts of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Speak to us and through us this day. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, it starts this way. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of all kind. It's what I just prayed for for myself and for all of us. And it might be what we should pray for ourselves and for all of us every single time we're in a church service before the pastor gets up to preach a message. Verse 1 starts with the word, therefore. And here's a pro tip for your Bible reading. Anytime you read a verse that starts with the word, therefore, you should double back and read the verses that come before it. Any verse that starts with the word, therefore, only contains half of a thought. Your Bible is full of these 
silly things like chapter numbers and verse numbers. Those weren't added to your Bible until 1,300 years after this letter we're studying today was written. And if you really pay attention, sometimes it feels like chapter numbers and verse numbers were added to the Bible randomly. It doesn't always make sense where a chapter breaks. There are chapters in your Bible that break in the middle of a paragraph. There are chapters in your Bible that break in the middle of a sentence. And so just because this is the first verse of a new chapter does not mean that it's starting a new thought. What's happened here is that the chapter's been added in the middle of the thought. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of all kind. But why? Why do we need to rid ourselves of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander? And the word, therefore, tells us that we need to go backwards to find the answer. 1 Peter 1, 22 through 23 says this, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. We rid ourselves of malice and deceit and everything else, because we have been remade by the Word of God, because we have received and accepted the truth of Scripture. That's why we need to choose to change the postures of our hearts. And what's going to happen when we choose to change the postures of our hearts? According to 1 Peter 2, verse 2, we will better crave the spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. This handful of verses spells out a beautiful cycle of spiritual growth for all of us. We hear and receive the Word of God, which compels us to change the attitudes of our hearts, which opens us to better hear and receive the Word of God, which encourages us to change the attitude of our hearts, which lets us better hear and receive the Word of God. This pattern will continue, and we will continue to grow until we choose to break this pattern. We break the pattern when we don't prioritize the Bible's role in our lives. We break this pattern when we go to Scripture or when we listen to a sermon with hearts that aren't in the right place. Maybe you've had the experience where you heard a sermon and you thought, just didn't do anything for you. Maybe you're there right now. And don't get me wrong. There's, there's probably some bad sermons floating around in the world. And like we talked about earlier, a lot of them have been based on this chapter that we're reading today. But I would say it's at least not always the preacher's fault if a sermon doesn't speak to you the way you think it should. If you show up to church with a sour heart, a heart filled with malice or deceit or envy or slander, well, that's on you. So before we continue, I want to give all of us just a second for a heart check. And if you need to ask for forgiveness or grace or mercy or just help with something that you're holding on to that you should have left in the parking lot, then let's take a minute to unload that burden and to choose to change the posture of your heart to seek the pure spiritual truth of God's Word this morning.
So far today, I've said nothing controversial. I've also said nothing groundbreaking. I spent the last five minutes trying to make it sound really groundbreaking. But it's really pretty simple stuff, isn't it? Receive the word of God and let it change your heart. Then receive it again and let it change your heart again. This is not revolutionary. But in biblical times, this idea would have been revolutionary. And that's where Peter is going next. For the Jews in the time of Jesus, a relationship with God was not necessarily personal. It was something that required an intermediary. This was the role of the priests at the temple. Your sins were forgiven through the intermediary of the priest. Your faith was made legitimate through the intermediary of the priest. The arrival of Jesus upended that hierarchy and took out the middleman. This simplified cycle of spiritual growth that we have now, word, heart, word, heart, this is not radical to us today. 2,000 years ago, it would have been new. There were people, powerful people, who would have been angered by it. There were Christians, Christians who grew up observantly Jewish, okay, who would have felt that all of this talk about a personal relationship with the living God was taboo. And that even though their faith and the word told them it was right, it might have felt wrong because it wasn't the way they grew up. It wasn't what they were used to. And so Peter is trying to embolden his audience of Christians, and he does it with this quick turn of phrase in verse 9. He says this, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. A royal priesthood. And maybe that verse doesn't strike you today as being unique or special or even particularly noteworthy. But 2,000 years ago, this verse, those words, would have had the power to change a person's opinion of their own life. 2,000 years ago, the common Jewish people were subservient to two different, often opposed, very powerful groups. They were oppressed by royalty and often at the whims of the priests. Think about it. The crucifixion of Jesus was a collaboration of these two groups of people, of the religious leaders and the government. And it happened because both groups wanted to remind the people of the lower caste who held the real power. Of course, Jesus came back from the dead. It was the ultimate power move. And now Peter wants to remind the followers of Jesus that they are a part of that Christ's church, that the Holy Spirit is a part of them, and that the superior power of Jesus is now a part of their DNA. They are a royal priesthood. This verse is an impossibly beautiful reminder of the incredible value of your life because of the immaculate person of Jesus. And that's what makes me so upset when I remember the ways that this verse has been taken out of context. I remember the time this verse was used against me. And it's a silly story. I was a sophomore in college, and I played intramural flag football with some of the other guys who lived on my same floor in my dorm. 
I was also a participant in a campus fellowship ministry, and they had their own flag football team too. The fellowship team wanted me to join their team. This was real big drama when I was 20 years old. My Bible study leader was really pushing for me to join the fellowship team, but I, I didn't want to because they were bad. <laughs> and so, they, they were nice guys. They were bad. He started throwing scripture at me. And you're right. This does feel like a weird kind of problem to start throwing scripture at. He misquoted a different translation of this verse, 1 Peter 2.9. Uh, what he was going for was to quote another translation that says, as followers of Christ, we are set apart. Maybe you've heard that before. As followers of Christ, we are set apart. But what he said to me was that as followers of Christ, we needed to set ourselves apart. And that's different. He got into me a little bit about how he knew that some of the guys on my dorms team would party on the weekends and do underage drinking which I guess was the most evil thing a person could do at that time. My Bible study leader told me that I needed to set myself apart. He said the Bible said I needed to set myself apart, and I wish I could tell you that I went and got into a concordance and studied this verse and broke it down and came back and refuted his misguided eisegesis. I wish I could tell you that I did the hard theological work of deducing that Peter had not written a letter to the Christians in Asia Minor sometime around the year 61 AD so that I could make a better decision about my intramural flag free agents, flag football free agency in the year 2004 AD. But I didn't. I went back to my dorm room and I felt a tremendous amount of guilt for being disobedient to what someone told me the Bible said because there was no way I was switching over to that fellowship team because they were terrible. <laughs> they were nice guys. And if you thought that was a poignant example of how First Peter has been used to twist truth and to hurt others, just wait until what's coming next. Because the happy part of this chapter is over now. We've got to get into the difficult stuff, and I would love to be able to look up at that clock right now and see that we were almost out of time, and that regrettably, we didn't have time to continue on to the most challenging verses in this chapter, but I can't do that, because that clock's not back there anymore, because <laughs> I told them to take it down like two months ago. So I guess we have to soldier on, because I can't tell you that you are a chosen people and a royal priesthood without telling you the part that's coming next. Verses 13 and 14 are the verses that have been used by immoral and illegitimate governments to pacify the masses. It says this, For the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution, whether of the emperor as supreme or of governors as sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. This verse is fraught with historical baggage. You can see why it is fraught with historical baggage. It was, it was used to try to silence German Christians in the lead up to World War II. It's got this weird theological difficult issue that almost seems to point to the idea that like God raises up evil dictators to exercise punishment over those who do wrong. Worse yet, it almost seems to point to the idea that those who suffer at the hands of immoral governments do so because of their own wrong 
doing. It is not hard to look at this verse and imagine a thousand wrong-headed sermons springing forth from this one passage. It's not hard to imagine that this passage has been weaponized to hurt, oppress, and kill people for centuries. I can't just explain away why this verse says what it says. Like, if I was in charge of the Bible, I would probably reword it or redact it. But that's not an authority that's been given to me. So these verses are here, and we're going to have to deal with them. I can't tell you why these verses say exactly what they say, how they say it. But I think I can tell you why Peter wrote them. I think Peter wrote this section to preemptively guard against the big-headedness of the Christians who would read the verses he wrote earlier. Remember that bit about the, the royal priesthood? It's a turn of phrase that was written to elevate the responsibility of Christians, but not necessarily the status of Christians. Let me say that again. Peter calls us a royal priesthood to elevate the level of responsibility we hold, not necessarily to elevate our status. And Peter writes this, this problematic-looking bit about the authority of government, not as a tacit endorsement of every government that will ever exist anywhere, but to remind the Christians that their ascendance into the royal priesthood does not permit them to use those words to elevate themselves over others. Peter might say, yes, yes, you are a royal priesthood, but that does not mean you get to act like a king. I might say it this way, as you follow this path of spiritual growth, word, heart, word, heart, as you attain something like increasing levels of holiness, it's going to make you better than you were. But you can never permit yourself to believe that you are better than someone else. That's not the point. That's never been the point. Pastor Brian wrote this incredible question for this week's circle curriculum. If you get the notifications through the Clay Church app, we send out a daily question every Monday through Saturday at about um, 10 or 10.30 a.m. And you're going to get this question this week, and it asks us to consider what's the difference between being holy and being holier than thou. For me, anyway, the answer lies in who we're comparing ourselves to. If we consider our own holiness against the holiness of our neighbors, we'll find ourselves developing egos. We'll find ourselves eager to judge the lives of others. We might even find ourselves cheering for others to stumble. We're going to find ourselves filled with malice and envy and slander. And remember, that's not a posture that's going to lead to spiritual growth. But... If we consider our own holiness in light of Christ, that's going to keep us humble. We'll be able to admit our own shortcomings. We'll be able to admit that we don't know it all. We'll crave that spiritual milk because we'll recognize that it's okay to be hungry. A posture of humility is one that will lead to growth. A posture of humility is one that will point us toward holiness. That right there is what I think this section of 1 Peter is all about. You can't grab a verse 
or two verses or a quarter of a paragraph and pretend like it means something, if you don't know what everything else around it means, if you don't know what everything else around it is pointing to, and what this is pointing to is how we become holy and how we remain grounded. That right there is what First Peter is all about, and I, I recognize my time is actually winding down here. But First Peter tells us what it means to be holy and how we get there. Spiritual growth comes when we receive the word, when we choose to change the attitudes of our hearts, when we watch our actions, rinse and repeat. It'll work. I promise you, it'll work. But remember, always remember, as you better yourself in your walk with Christ, you can never permit yourself to think of yourself as better than someone else. Uh, John Wesley called this the pursuit of Christian perfection. Uh, in the words of Aerosmith, it's a journey, not a destination. The duty that we have to pursue that Christian perfection is both a privilege and a responsibility. First Peter maybe isn't clear about a lot of things, but it's clear about this. As Christians, we should joyfully celebrate that we can live for Jesus, and we should somberly consider that we must. As followers of Jesus, you are called to live a holy life steeped in humility that reflects God's love and grace. Let me say that again. As a follower of Jesus, you are called to live a holy life steeped in humility that reflects God's love and grace. First Peter gives us the permission to live this kind of life. It gives us the responsibility to live this kind of life. And so today, my prayer for me and for you and for all of us is that we would continue to grow in faith, continue to receive the word, continue to monitor the posture of our hearts and to live upright in light of and only in the light of Christ. Amen.